Welcome to the Tech Rides Podcast, where we feature inspiring stories of entrepreneurship from top business leaders while riding in a cool car. I'm your host, Edwin Martial. If you would like to see the videos and cool cars we feature on the show, sign up and watch at techrides.io. Tech Rides, smart people, sweet rides, where industry leaders ride shotgun. How do you go from renting exotic cars out of your college dorm room to a YouTube sensation with over 1 million subscribers? Find out today in part two of our discussion with VinWiki founder Ed Bolian as we ride in Ed's Ferrari 430 Scuderia and track his career path as an entrepreneur. If you want to see the 430 Scuderia or hear about Ed's amazing record setting the cannonball run drive across the United States in 2013, go to techrides.io and see images of this beautiful car and watch part one of our discussion there. This is a 430 Scuderia, 2009? Exactly, so 430 generally means 4.3 liter V8. Usually the number pertains, at least in some generality, to the engine displacement. And so that was a huge step up from the 3.6 liter V8 and the 360 before it. You also went to a timing chain driven motor, so a lot of the maintenance is a lot more manageable on this car. Uh, I love the 360s, that was kind of the first car they really felt like could be daily usable. Prior to that, 355s were some pretty significant maintenance issues and things of that nature, but these are cars that you really can put miles on. Now at 35,000 miles, this is a pretty high mile example, but it's uh, it's it's treated me quite well. So, I is love that it. Twin turbo V8? Nope, naturally aspirated. They stayed naturally aspirated as long as they could, but at the volume of cars they wanted to produce uh, with the California T and the 488, they've now gone full turbos. And you know, that hurts the sound a little bit and things like that, but it does generate great power. Yeah, do you like the stick or do you? Do you... I love stick cars. And yeah. so one of the reasons I was really comfortable buying this car is that you could, uh, there is a company in San Antonio that's converting them to manual. And so I drove one of their cars and really liked it. That being said, you know, my wife doesn't drive a stick and I like her being able to drive the cars. And so she drove this one around and really liked it. So I'm going to keep it sequential for a while because for a track focused car, it does offer an advantage. And also since I have a manual Lamborghini, that's kind of the best of both worlds. They complement each other really, really well. Do you, do you do much track time? I do a few times a year. I'd like to get more into it. I mean, honestly, Taking a car that's this expensive out on the track can be kind of a reckless idea because yeah. it's tough to get insurance and the risks are just really, really high and you don't get better. So you can have a lot of fun having a car that's really fast and that you can pass all the low horsepower stuff, but really the chance to be in something that allows you to uh, really learn that because it's got less power and you need to conserve momentum and do better, that's a better approach. So. I'm going to try to take the old Audi out and do maybe one lap of America in it, uh, which is like 10 different tracks in the course of a week. Yeah. Uh, I think it'd be a lot more fun and I'd get a lot better. Do you do uh, Road Atlanta? We've done that one. I actually worked at Road Atlanta as kind of a you know young instructor and assist with drills and things like that for the Panos Racing School oh, and Audi nice. driving experience as a summer job after high school. So I love the track, it's amazing, and just everything else about the history of the track and the Whittington brothers and everything else that's going on at Road Atlanta, I just love. So the entire Cannonball Run, you escaped 
uh, the cops and not getting a ticket, but in the last three weeks, you got in a little trouble, right? I have gotten into a bit of trouble. Uh, fortunately, on four of the five stops, I was able to talk the officer into warnings, but on one in Arkansas, we got a little bit of a reckless driving charge, so my court date for that is tomorrow, so the, the attorney's going to appear there on my behalf, but you generally don't want to show up uh, on a ticket that high because the judge will be inclined to teach you a lesson. And uh, we were driving in, on this rally that all the stickers are still in the car for. We were on a route from ultimately Nashville to Las Vegas, but on that leg we were driving from Memphis to Dallas, so we were in southeast Arkansas and met up with a couple of state troopers. I guess we passed one on a divided highway with a median in the middle, and he clocked us, he claimed, at 111 and a 70. And so we went around the next bend, not knowing that he was in the process of going down, turning around and coming back. But the next cop that we passed pulled out in front of us, turned on his lights and uh, signaled us to get over. So we immediately pulled over at that time. Maybe we were going 90, I don't know. And so we pull in right behind him, but he just jumps out of the car going nuts. I mean, he's got his gun drawn, you know, he's, he's intense, kicks his door open. And I'm like, whoa, 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 you know, hands on top of the steering wheel. And he's like, get out of the car. I'm like, okay, okay, uh, you know, I'm gonna unbuckle my seatbelt here. And so he's, you know, really worked up, proceeds to pull me out of the car and immediately handcuffs me. Wow. Just out of nowhere. Doesn't say we're under arrest, but says, go stand behind my car. Doesn't read us our rights, but he gets more handcuffs and handcuffs the other two guys in. And I'm like, man, this is really a zero to high order violence pretty quick. Uh, so, uh, we're just standing there. He's like, what are y'all doing? Well, we're just going to Dallas. He's like, well, why'd you go 111 past a trooper? And I'm like, well, obviously we didn't know there was a trooper there and it was 111 if you say so, but you know, it's, you know, we're, we're sorry. It goes a lot faster than that if you try. And he's, he starts calming down. But as I get talking to him, he tells me that he's just been a cop for about eight months. So he probably just got a radio call that, you know, he's about to have a high speed chase with two Ferraris and a Porsche and all three of us had pulled over together. So, we kind of start disarming him. I tell him about some of the charities we work with, one of which is the Cannonball Memorial Run, and I'm the only civilian that tends to do that drive, but it's all cops and they raise money for the families of fallen officers. So, you know, it earned some good favor. We had stickers on the car for that. So, you know, he starts to breathe a little easier. He gets some friends showing up, and then we had four or five police cars on the side of the road, and the rest of the rally is kind of tiptoed past, or some of them were in the rest area that we were adjacent to. And over time, we get him talked into, well, he's going to let us go with just a ticket. But that ticket was also reckless driving. And he claimed he had to write it for reckless driving. I don't, I don't necessarily think that was the case. But I don't know where it'll end up. Generally, you know, we have a sponsor called Ticket Clinic that is one of the YouTube channel sponsors for the Vinwiki channel. And they help people find the best attorney in any market to kind of help figure out the best way to, to deal with a ticket. And so uh, that was you know, a very useful contact. So I found a good old uh, Arkansas lawyer and he's been kind of trying to get in touch with the right prosecutors to figure out exactly what he can work out. Because usually, you know, if you're not a habitual felon, they're going to figure out a way to, to give you some higher fine for a lesser charge that doesn't get you points or doesn't go on your license or get notified to your insurance. an entrepreneur for a while because you were in college, right? You went to Georgia Tech I did, and, and yeah. you started, um, I thought I read, you started your 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 exotic car rental 
service right out of out of tech. Yeah, in my dorm room. So back then, this would have been 2006, in kind of the economic atmosphere that precipitated the downturn that we saw right. in 2008 and 9. And you could get stated income loans for anything, including exotic cars. And so, at 20 years old, I got a stated income loan for my first Lamborghini. And, uh, you know, got it, started renting it out. A few months later, I bought my first Ferrari and built the fleet up from there. Got some really dedicated customers that, that really treated that as an ownership alternative. I wasn't so much targeting the rap videos and the out-of-town people that were in for conventions or whatever. We got that stuff, but what I really liked were the people that were kind of treating this as beating the game, especially in 08 and 09 when luxury assets were just depreciating like crazy. Do you have any tech to... to enable that or were you just kind of word of mouth letting well, people know? Well, that was just the absolute beginning of social media marketing. And obviously I didn't have any budget for marketing. I'd used every dollar I had for the down payment on this Lamborghini. And so I needed to figure out ways, not just for through like guerrilla marketing at car shows, but also to try to be able to get in front of people online. And so I was using forums and things like that to really be active in the community of enthusiasts. And that's where I'd find these people that wanted cars, but they weren't you know, interested in them depreciating at some point, five to 10% a month, You know, the, it was so rapid. Uh, so when we saw some of these massive market adjustments, there was generally no circumstance that I couldn't make driving an exotic car over any time or distance cheaper than you could just go and buy one and own it yourself. So then you uh, you did that for a while. How many you built it up to? How many cars? I think I had six at the peak. That was really all you needed. I mean, it's really cool to have a warehouse full of a ton of cars, but people only want to rent Ferraris and Lamborghinis, and so everything else is just for the vanity of the postcards. Yeah, yeah, okay. So then after college, then uh, what was your next step? Well, so as the economy bottomed out, the quality of the customer base eroded because it became actually more beneficial to buy your own depreciated car and just wait for the market to kind of strengthen, which it did, but it took several years. And so I started to have a lot of more people mistreating the cars, not turning them in on time. Just, it was, it was a much less sound business model and the risk just got too great. And so I, for a long time, I've been courted by the local exotic car dealers to see if I would come sell cars for them in the, the local Ferrari store and the local Lamborghini store both wanted me to come sell their cars. And so I thought that sounded miserable. I knew the lifestyle of exotic car sales, but I knew it was a place that I could learn a lot about the industry and really make a mark. And so I went to Lamborghini because at the time, even in 2008 and 09, when this car was new, they were still sold out years in advance. And so it was really just order taking at Ferrari. And so I was the director of sales at Lamborghini Atlanta. And during that time, we got the Aston Martin franchise and the McLaren franchise, and I kind of led both of those brands initially. And I really enjoyed that. I love the transactional nature of sales, because even though I'm a technology entrepreneur today, I'm not really as much of a tech guy. I understand the power of technology to make other business models a lot more capable, a lot more sustainable, and a lot cheaper to deploy. Because obviously, starting lean, staying lean, bootstrapping as far as you can, as you can is something that's been quintessential to the way that Benwicky has been successful. And so I was at the dealership for six years and did a lot with 
making sure that the customers just develop this idea of community, of loyalty to the store, of loyalty to me, and to make sure that they understood that buying a Lamborghini from us was a very different idea than just buying one off the internet. Because obviously, everyone's using technology to market, everybody's using social media, but making sure that we could go out on these beautiful roads and drive together, go to dinners together, host events, and everything else that could really augment the experience of ownership was really just a, a transformative thing within regards to sales. Right. So you're working at the dealership and um, that's when you did the, the run, right? You exactly. did the cannonball run, right? And, and that was really the point that changed it. And I knew that doing something that could render you branded as an outlaw could very easily interrupt traditional employment. And that was something, you know, among the risks I knew I was taking. But I, I didn't know how much of a change it was going to be. I mean, in the days following the announcement of our record, we couldn't even do business at the dealership because all the news outlets were just calling, asking to interview me. And, you know, that's not the kind of thing that the owner and the general manager of the store that are trying to actually run a business necessarily want. I mean, all marketing can be good marketing, but that was a distraction. And so as I started to become more successful, mostly based on having more of a name within the industry, people were buying cars from Ed rather than buying cars from Lamborghini Atlanta. And that's not necessarily the most desirable thing. And you see that across the board about employers that don't necessarily understand exactly the ways that their employees are cultivating social media to create deals. And so what I was doing was just creating such a constant stream of dedicated business that it really created some pretty strong disparities between what I was doing as a salesperson and what the rest of the guys were. And so that can cause some friction, cause some heartburn. And not long after the record run, actually the month after, my wife and I got pregnant by very much her design. And we uh, ended up having a baby just about a year later. And so um, at that point, I knew that 70, 80 hours a week at a car dealership was not the long-term sustainable operation that I was looking for in terms of personal and work-life balance. And so without really knowing what was next, I decided to leave. And I had gotten in the habit, which I'd recommend anyone do if you have any entrepreneurial interest or bent, is just find like-minded people and meet with them regularly. Not with an agenda, not with a direction, not with a specific idea necessarily, but just to spitball, brainstorm, and to be in the company of people who at least like to think the way you like to think. And so every few months, even through the time at the dealership, I'd get together with a good lawyer, a good accountant, a good numbers guy, a good sales guy, somebody who knew different aspects of web development, app development, and things like that, and really learn what we could do. What did the resources in that room allow us to start thinking about? And I started doing that with a little bit more haste once I left the dealership in November of 2015. And in December of 2015, we came up with the idea of VinWiki. Okay. And VinWiki grew out of a lot of the things I did personally to sell cars at the dealership because what I certainly learned was that we could change the way that a car was perceived, not through what Carfax would say, not through what the window sticker would say, not through what a previous owner would say, but to really curate the history of the car's timeline. And when we did that, that became a much more compelling narrative than what they could find elsewhere. And they would buy a car because I said it was a good car and I showed them why it was a good car and I showed them what the market could do rather than just because this is what the numbers would say or quantitatively 
made the most sense. So were you, you were selling them new cars? Ex- mostly used cars. Oh, they were used cars. Exactly. Okay, so We'd you... sell both, new and used, okay. but the, it was a, a lot healthier to sell more uh, used cars. And then that's when you, you would yeah. put stories behind the, the, those cars. Exactly. And so the, another thing that I had done while I was at the dealership is I've always loved Lamborghini Murcielago. And they didn't make that many that were true manual gearboxes. And that's something I just love. And so one thing that I did is I, I had built up my credit so well through financing all the cars for the exotic car rental company that I could get a huge loan to buy just about whatever I wanted. And so I found a terrific example of a manual LP640, which is kind of the most advanced generation of the car that they made from 02 to 010. These were 07, 08s, and 09s. And once I bought one, I had a theory that they were a lot more rare than anybody kind of let on because once these sequential manual gearboxes got popular, it was a huge market acceptance rate. And so you'd see at least 90 plus percent, but what it ended up being was almost 98, 99 percent on some models. People go into the, the sequential the sequentials. Yeah. And so I started making a list of all the VINs of all the cars. What year was this now? This would have been in 2015 when I bought that car. And so I released a list of all the VINs of all the cars that I had researched to figure out that they were real sticks. And when I did that and put it online, RM referenced it for an auction, all these people started sharing it, and it ended up making the values of all the cars, all 26 that I had found, double in value. Now since then, I've found a couple of more. So there's, there's 28 US cars that are true manuals, and about 11 have been damaged, totaled, or modified unaffectionately. And so that caused the value to just skyrocket, and I was able to use the profit from that first flip to buy the least nice example. It was a theft recovery accident car that, that I, I loved. I could drive guiltlessly, put as many miles on it as I wanted, and I bought it for less than I made on the first one, so it was my dream car for free. And noticing the power that you could have with really curation of that kind of data was, was just awesome. So taking note of the power that you could wield by really curating the history of cars yourself and as a group is really where the idea of VinWiki came from. And we describe VinWiki as a social version of Carfax or a crowdsourced vehicle history reporting platform. And we just give anybody kind of an open-ended app that allows them to post just about anything they want to to a car by its VIN or by its license plate, which we end up referencing to the VIN from the state systems. So, so basically, if I go on VinWiki and I find my like old 98 Honda Prelude, exactly, I can attach a story to it. Yes, and you can see what's happened to it since then, what other people have said about it, where it's shown up and things like that. And so I love that because early on, I had made a list of all the VINs of all the cars I'd ever owned through the rental company and other car flips and crazy buying expeditions and stuff like that. And so that allowed me to kind of zoom out and see what would happen because people would Google their VINs and find my website and message me. So I found out that one of my Land Rovers had been exported to Russia. Another one had gone through an auction in Miami and was in Puerto Rico. That first Lamborghini that I bought for supercar rentals got exported to Hong Kong. And so just finding out which ones got crashed, which ones got fixed, and and just learning all these things that we don't normally get to know about the cars that we love but move on to the next one with. And so VinWiki was designed to really do those three things, allow you to control the history, allow you to curate the history of rare cars, and also to let you see beyond 
what normal ownership looks like. Does it have to be rare cars or any car? No, we've got about 165 million cars in the database right now. There's about 300 million cars that have ever been sold in the United States. And so we're creeping up on that and we get more and more cars each day. And we're just, we're having fun letting it grow. How does it, so how does a car get in there? Does somebody have to put it in there initially or? So we do some web crawling for classified listings and integration of larger data sets. But usually the most valuable data that we find is when someone posts like, hey, this weekend, me and my kid changed the oil in the driveway. Like documenting that DIY service is always a great way to go about it. had the idea and uh, then what, what was the next step? Did you go out and find somebody to build the app? I did well so in these meetings where we'd have people come together in one of them I had Dave Black who was my co-driver from the New York to LA record and Dan Wong who rode behind us in the uh, as a as a navigator and support passenger and Dave was a back-end architect for Apple and Dan was a front-end iOS developer and he worked for Cycleromic and Car360 and some other prolific Atlanta startups like Yik Yak. And so he was a great developer. I had another friend that was a web front-end developer and another guy that had more technical chops than I do, which I'll happily concede. And so he- How did you know all these guys? Are they from- Just from car stuff. So, you know, cars that had brought us together for a car-related idea just happened to be the coincidence of technological prowess. And so putting all those pieces together, I was like, look, it looks seems like we could put this together and spin up an MVP model. And so we did that. And so over the first three months of 2016, we built the VinWiki app. We tested through, I think, 48 different revisions and releases, and then we rolled it out iOS only. And so we had we outsourced a very simplistic Android build, which I'll happily concede to this day leaves a lot to be desired, but we were really just trying to prove the concept out. Like, is this something right, right. that people are going yeah, to Yeah, classic use? MVP, get it out there, see, exactly. see what the product market fit is. And what we found was, this was not all things to all car guys. It wasn't going to be that. This isn't Facebook for cars. It's a thing that people who care about properly dealing with vehicle history and curating registries of rare cars and making sure that they document their own car in the best way rather than just shoving receipts into a glove box, this was a way for them to really grab a hold of the story of their car. And they were doing that. It worked really, really well. So people through the lifetime of their car, they're telling the stories as they own the car. Exactly. Exactly. And then so that way when somebody comes and buys a car, there's this whole documentation of not just the, the numbers, but all the all the personal stories that have gone through the years with the cars well. Correct. And and that and we saw people getting that. So the road from figuring out, all right, there are people that care about this to we've got to scale it, we've got to make it fit, that takes a lot of iteration, a lot of development, and a lot of work. And these guys in that year of trying to figure out just how people were using it, I was the only one really devoting myself full time to the idea of Benwicky. And that was fine. It was a great time in my life to just get to spend with our users figuring out exactly what they loved about the app and what else they might want. But we were still, as an early stage startup, struggling with how do you market this? Right. And I had a lot of friends that did a lot on social media, on big Instagram accounts, on big YouTube channels and things like that. And when they would share our stuff, we would figure out that we got a lot of new users. It was a great way to market. But I mean, Anytime you're going to start pumping ads out there in front of people, it gets really expensive. And so 
one of the taglines we used early on is you are your car's story and we wanted people to change the way they looked at automotive history by looking more at the people that were interacting with the cars so i called a bunch of friends and i said hey let's all come out to my warehouse one day we'll sit around have pizza and beer and we'll tell car stories and so we shot our first 25 videos for a channel that had no audience at all and just started releasing videos on YouTube of me and my friends sitting around telling car stories. So this was at July of 2017 when the app was right at a year old. And we had about 5,000 really dedicated, great people in the app that understood what we were trying to do and were kind of willing to live through some of the growing pains. And how did you get that first 5,000? Just uh, word of mouth. You know, people telling people, um, a few news articles that I could call in favors for and get it in Jalopnik or Drive Tribe or something like that. Um, but obviously, an app of 5,000 people doesn't go anywhere fast. So we needed to get more exposure. And when I would have somebody come drive one of my cars and make a YouTube video about it, we'd see a nice little uptick of a few hundred new users, which at that point was mind blowing. And so we were really excited about all that, but we wanted to keep it growing. And so, we decided, I guess, well, we'll see if we can start our own YouTube channel. And we did. And it went gangbusters. And we thought, all right, we're going to make these 25 videos. Let's say we averaged 2,000 views a video. That'd be awesome. If that does that, we'll, then we'll make some more. Well, we got 800,000 views for those first ones and decided, look, we've got to keep within doing the first this month. within the first month. First month. Yeah. And I'm like, man, this is crazy and people were sharing them and loving them and just enjoying the stories. And I had composed a lot of my personal car stories as part of my book about the New York to LA record because I'd released that in 2000, early 16. And just on Amazon, self-published it. But, you know, honestly, a story about three guys uneventfully speeding across the country isn't all that compelling. So I would mix in different stories from the car business and stuff like that. Okay, okay. So you put you put these videos, the initial videos out there, and immediately you started getting all these hits. Yeah, tons of traffic. And how did that, I mean, it's just kind of like... Well, we saw different articles that pick them up and they'd be shared in different prolific locations through Auto Trader or Jalopnik or Drive Tribe or The Drive and all of these kind of automotive media properties that were getting a lot of, a lot of attention and it started to grow, but it very immediately showed us that this is gonna to have to become someone's full-time job. And right. the editor that had helped me with the first ones didn't want that to be his full-time job. He had professional movie obligations, and so he didn't want to be a YouTuber, and I can understand that. But I figured, we gotta keep doing this. It's the best marketing we've ever had, and on some time horizon, I've been told that you make money on YouTube. and so. I started doing, I bought all the camera equipment, everything we needed, and just started trying to figure out how to do it. And, you know, learned the editing software and everything like that, and uh, just started learning. And so there's like 25 really, really good ones, and then there's about 20 abysmal failures that I was doing, just learning how to how it worked. Right. And, you know, I'd render it out at the wrong frame rate, or I'd have it cropped terribly, or just everything. The audio was awful but everybody kept watching them, even as bad as they were. And so we started to get millions and millions of views on these videos, and they were kind of evergreen content, so there wasn't really like an expiration on when people would, uh, would stop watching. So they just kept getting views, and we kept making them. You 
you start to learn about how all of YouTube's algorithms work and how you can kind of, you know, make people watch and hope they keep watching and, you know, serve up the videos in a way that they like. And it's all about consistency and constant release of quality content. It's been the best content marketing strategy we ever could have dreamt of. And at this point, it at least pays enough to keep the servers spinning. So right, it's right. been an amazing transformation to the audience that we have in the app, but, oh, but certainly to the awareness that we have for what we're trying to do here at Benwiki. And it's not designed to be a constant slap you in the face commercial about download this app. It's designed to be entertaining content where each of the stories is essentially an example of a blown up version of one of the stories that might be a great post in the app. Okay. So what's, uh, tell me some of the, the kind of the craziest stories you've had on. <laughs> So some of the stories that have been that have gone well, I bought a Lamborghini from a local prostitute while I was working at Lamborghini Atlanta, so that was a good one. Uh, my wife actually bought a Ferrari from uh, a guy that T-Pain had given it as a birthday present. He was a, one of his rappers on his label. Uh, I took a cop for a ride once in a Lamborghini and we went 196 miles an hour. Wow, where, where was that? Uh, down by the Masters. We were doing press drives with Callaway at the Masters. Um, our users came together and we found two stolen Lamborghinis that have been missing for six years by combining different lists of cars in the app and post and people that had spotted different cars, different places. And so we were able to recover those for the owners. Um, the, uh, I talked about some crazy car selling, car test driving, car stories from the dealership times. Give some advice on like how people can finance exotic cars or the best roads they can go drive on or trips. We talk about cannonball stuff. We want it to be useful content. I mean, I want it to be something that somebody's thought like, all right, I've got a great car in Atlanta, but I need to go know where to use it. Or I've always heard about the cannonball run. I want to see what will happen. So you've never, you've never raised money for the app development, right? Or I haven't, no. I mean, I, you know, I had obviously saved some money up to be ready to take some time off at the dealership and so I never expected to go over two years without making a dollar but sometimes that's what happens I mean it's it's the nature of being an entrepreneur and it's it's the nature of technology and one of the things that we've always known about the idea of Vinwiki is that it fits much better as a special sauce on top of a larger automotive data platform and there's so many great players in that space with Cox Automotive in town and uh, everyone that's innovating through Carfax and IHS and Market and all these other great upstarts like Car Gurus. And, you know, we've spoken to all of them about where they see us falling on the roadmap, you know, at, at different points where they'd have more of an appetite for acquisition. And so, you know, not worrying so much about putting a bunch of ads in the face of our users while we can, you know, magically make some money off making videos on the internet has just been the perfect serendipitous outcome for us in fundraising and funding this app. So yeah, so I, I guess that you I can see that that like the perfect fit would be as you're searching for a used car, you know, you're, you 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 go on car gurus or auto trader and you've got your typical information about the car, you got the car facts info, then you've also got the story. You've got the, the, the personal history of the car. Exactly. along with it and you can even reach out to some of the past owners potentially and, and uh, discuss with them so that, that that would really be the, the ideal I think is that the ultimate it is yeah that we combine it with some of the more formulaic tabular data that you would get from a normal vehicle history reporting platform 
but that you also get some of this stuff that you can't find anywhere else. Well, Ed, I am excited to see what comes next. Um, <laughs> this has been a really uh, a lot of fun, and uh, it's been a pleasure to spend time with you. Thanks for coming out. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you for being on Tech Rides. Now hit it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tech Rides podcast. If you like what you heard, please sign up at techrides.io and look for new podcasts and videos down the road. We will be releasing podcast versions of our past videos and also introduce new podcasts on a regular basis. Tech Rides, smart people, sweet rides, where industry leaders ride shotgun. <laughs>